Chapter 29 While all of this drama with Christy was happening, Velma and Don had been busily working away on their cakes. Velma's now is starting to take shape, it's got three tiers to it, standing roughly 45 centimeters tall, wrapped neatly in fondant, with white icing dripping down the sides, a beautiful facade of chaos amidst Velma's laser focus concentration. Don, on the other hand, seems to be enjoying themselves. Having learned their lesson from last round, Don is pacing themselves, even adding small flares reminiscent of ballet. Just a certain flick of the wrist, a twirling spin, an elegant raise of the leg, that kind of thing. Makes me wonder a little, had they not become head baker at Little Red Hen's Bakery, where would Don be now? I think they would make a wonderful dancer. Their cake, however, does reflect the years of baking they have under their belt. Although it has only two layers, Don's cake is magnificent. They had melted chocolate and piped it into the shape of pine trees, even adding baubles of edible glitter, and they adorned the top of the cake clustered together as though they're huddling for warmth. In addition to this, white chocolate was dripping down the sides of the cake from where it had been smeared in order to resemble snow, although whether this was intentional or not was unclear. In comparison, Velma is clearly running out of time. She's startled by Prue informing them that they have five minutes left, and judging by the look on her face when she looks at the things on her counter, those five minutes were definitely not enough time for her to get everything done. Hurriedly, she scrambles to cobble together what she can, visibly praying for a miracle. Meanwhile, Dawn is calmly putting the finishing touches on their cake, occasionally glancing over at Velma to give her a reassuring thumbs up, to which she replies with a shaky smile, her lip trembling a little. The timer finally ticks down, and it's judging time. Bakers, Paul starts, could you please bring your cakes to the judging table? Velma takes a deep breath doing her best to steady her jittery nerves, and lifts the cake stand up. Almost instantaneously, one of the snow pal's face plants directly into the cake. She looks devastated, and if the cake means what I think it's supposed to mean, I can understand why. Velma's hands start to shake with more ferocity, and the cake looks like it's experiencing an earthquake. Ever so slowly, the cake stand starts to tip forwards, and the cake starts to slide straight to the floor, and disaster. Thankfully, Dawn noticed the slide, and grabbed the other side of the cake stand, writing the cake. Here, let me help you with that, it must be heavy. Thank you. It wasn't going very well for Velma this round, and going off of the judges' faces, it was not going to get any better for her. It's underbaked. Paul starts curtly, holding aloft his slice of cake, which is almost entirely batter at the tip. Velma nods, blinking back a few tears, as Paul continues, I'm sure it would have tasted lovely, but we can't eat this. The fondant is quite messy here, 
too. Prue turned the cake stand towards us, where it was clear some of the fondant had torn and been hastily pushed back together again. The crushed-up candy canes look delightful, but they're not exactly a pleasant experience when it comes to eating it. I'm guessing you ran out of time? Paul asks, trying his best to be sympathetic, watching Velma, on the verge of tears, nodding in agreement, three tears is difficult and time-consuming, so perhaps scale it back in the future, or make it when your time isn't so constrained. Dawn is far more confident as they bring their cake to the judging table, the cake stand seems to almost glide through the air, and I wouldn't be surprised to learn that Dawn had been a waiter at some point. The judges each take a slice of cake each, with the presenters taking little pieces from their plates. Prue starts coughing violently, and one of the staffers has to rush on, hand her a glass of water, and rush back, with such speed that they almost spill the entire contents of the glass in the process. That is, a lot of spice, she says once the coughs stop, possibly even too much spice. Well, you know what they say about the English palate, Dawn replies lightheartedly, it's very delicate. Bland. Bland is what they meant. Also, that's the way my grandmother liked it, she was a really fiery person. Dawn adds. H.M. Prue remarked, unimpressed. The icing is a bit messy here, too, see how there's pools of white chocolate here? Paul uses his pinky to gesture to puddles of white chocolate along the edges of Dawn's cake caused by the dripping effect they had done, that means you did too much, so maybe hold back a little next time? Dawn nods, taking their advice seriously. Also, I'm guessing you added red food coloring to the batter, right Dawn? Prue asks, food coloring tends to fade when baked so it's a good rule of thumb to add a bit more than you think you need. Other than that, though, it tastes good, the texture's just right, Dash Paul says, trailing off a little. And your trees are just delightful. Sandy adds, having just bitten into one. Prue and Paul barely share a glance before declaring that they already knew who was going to win this round. It was no surprise, then, when they announced, Dawn, well done, you've won the signature bake challenge. Dawn, with a smile as wide as Manhattan, goes over to hug Velma, who politely obliges, a small, strained smile adorning her own face. Which now means whoever wins the final challenge, the showstopper challenge, wins overall. Noel informs us, the audience. And if I'm not mistaken you both made these ahead of time, and we have them already waiting in the wings, ready for judging. Let's get them in here, then. Sandy is using her big voice from her impression of a high-energy presenter, gesturing as dramatically as she could towards one of the tent doors, from which two staffers file in, each holding a cake each. The first to enter is the one holding Don's cake. 
Although it isn't particularly tall or grandiose at first glance, upon close inspection it's beautiful. Although I can't tell what kind of cake through the monitors, I can see the pristine white fondant draped over the cake coating the surface like freshly fallen snow. All around the edge were roughly 30 or 40 cinnamon sticks, all seemingly held to the cake by a single white ribbon tied around the cake. Adorning the top of the cake like a crown, there's a wreath of bay leaf and rosemary sprigs. Surrounded by this, three lit tea lights sit embedded into the fondant. It is magnificent. Velma's cake is just behind it. It looks exactly as perfect as it did when we put it into the fridge together, had it not been for the fact that it looked like someone had dropped it and hurriedly, and horrendously roughly, smushed it back together again. Melissa. I shouted at the door, slamming my fist against it, let me in, and give me back my notebook. I could tell from where the door was resisting opening that Melissa must be pressing her full body weight against the door in order to prevent me from opening it. No, she yelled back, I won't do any oh hi, sir, what are you dash dot? I heard a muffled scream from inside the classroom, and with a faint click the door opened slightly. Something about that detail terrified me far more than hunting ghosts with the rest of the crew ever did. If monsters aren't real, perhaps it's always just been humans, being horrible to each other. Cautiously, I pushed the door open with my foot, preparing myself for whatever I would find on the other side. Which, it turns out, was Melissa, clutching the notebook as tightly as she could, while a gangly shadowy creature held her tightly by the collar of her shirt. Fear was blossoming in her eyes, pleading with me to help. Glancing around the classroom, I saw that it's an abandoned, rather messy classroom not unsimilar to the one I met Shaggy and Scooby in. This one had all of its desks and chairs piled in the corner, along the wall opposite the window, and the curtains were blocking almost all of the light. There was a small bundle of blankets underneath the teacher's desk, where one would usually find the teacher's chair tucked into. The room smelled like old-week-old food, which was explained by the cafeteria plates covering the teacher's desk. There was also a large duffel bag of clothes on the floor next to the teacher's desk, half open and spilling over onto the floor dangerously close to one of the many, many candles littered around the room. The creature steps forward, letting me get a closer look at him. What was a weird, ugly creature in the shadows was now the awkwardly tall music teacher, cowering away from both me and Melissa, despite managing to keep a firm grip on her. It was clear that although he had eaten at some point, given the plates, he wasn't eating enough. Sir, do you mind letting Melissa go? We'll leave immediately, I just need you to let her go. I asked him as politely as I could manage, quashing the dread inside, now, sir. Without a reply, he kicked a nearby candle into the duffel bag of clothes, setting it ablaze. 
He shoves Melissa onto the floor with enough force to knock the notebook out of her hands and into the fire. I swallowed back a scream of despair and focused on the situation at hand. The teacher was making a last-ditch attempt to escape, for whatever reason, and the only thing standing in the way of him and the door was me. I braced myself for him to barrel into me, which he does without much hesitation. However, given his recent lack of nutrition, there was little mass backing the force. I will admit, I wasn't exactly skinny, but for once I'm glad of the extra weight, as, unlike Melissa, I'm not sent back flying. The inverse, in fact, is true, as the teacher was knocked back down to the ground. Stunned, it takes a little while for him to collect himself, which I took as an opportunity to try to put out the fire before it spreads further. During the commotion, Melissa had been trying her best to fish the notebook out of the fire, almost burning her hands in the process. I grabbed the pile of blankets and did my best to snuff out the flames, knowing that the attention of a fire alarm going off is the worst possible scenario in this current situation, as we would have to explain why three teenagers broke into an elementary school. That and the possibility of burning the school down. Thankfully, the fire didn't spread to the desk or anything else flammable and was out shortly after, after which the situation calmed down a little. The notebook, however, was long gone. Something about this mystery, however, called out to be solved before I dealt with the notebook. With the panic still prevalent in his mind, evident in his fidgetiness, I decided it would be best if the three of us sat cross-legged on the floor, hoping to indicate to him that I was going to listen open-mindedly to whatever he had to say. Sir, why, firstly what's your name? I asked him. My name is Josh, he started before adding to Melissa, it's still Mr. Rokotansky to you. Nice to meet you, Josh, I'm Velma. I replied, care to explain what's going on here? He hesitated for a second, as though he was weighing the pros and cons, before simply shrugging, sure. He explained that he had been the music teacher here his entire working career, over three decades at this point, makes sense, Crystal Cove wasn't exactly a large town and there was only one of each school stage, yet he just barely made enough to keep a roof over his family's head and food on the table. He kept working here, though, as he just loved teaching children that much, something about the magic of seeing their eyes light up when they successfully play their first song. However, about six months prior, his wife had enough of this and decided to divorce him. Even though this was a cordial divorce, the attorneys both forced them to fight over who owns what, so she took the house, the only kid still living in said home, and the car. On his meager wage, he can't afford to get a new house, or even a new flat, yet so while he was saving up, he was living in this abandoned classroom. Well, can't you ask the principal for a raise? Melissa asked. She's in charge of everything, after all. 
I don't think that's how it works, kiddo. Josh answers sadly, plus, I'm fairly certain she's noticed me living here, how could she not? The thing is, sir, I bet she wouldn't be too happy to learn that one of her staffers is in such a state, no offense, I added, Josh simply nodded understandingly, it's a safety concern, especially with all the candles, dash. I just didn't want to siphon off the electricity, he said anxiously, the kids need it more. Just go and explain your situation to her, okay, sir? I insisted, practically shoving him outside the door in the process, she will understand, I'm sure. You promise, he asked, shivering, or quaking, I wasn't sure. I grab one of the blankets from the floor and wrap it around his shoulders, I promise. Almost like a child, a smile blossomed on his face, and he skipped off towards the principal's office. Chapter 30 Velma's face was like glass. It remained so still I'd worried she'd died of shock right then and there. The tiramisu, which we had spent so long on, is ruined, and it looks like she is going to lose her bakery on top of it all. The presenters also seem fairly confused, so I can only assume that they too must have seen the cakes beforehand. The judges I know for certain haven't seen the cakes before they came into the tent a minute ago, but they do seem to have given Velma's cake weird looks. The current state of affairs must be puzzling to all, I suppose. What happened? Sandy asks, inspecting her cake, did it collapse during the transfer? It couldn't have, Velma replies melancholically, it shouldn't be that delicate. The monitor showing the audience reveals a group of people who are as equally shocked and discouraged as Velma is. Most of these people are there to watch Velma succeed, and seeing her flop this hard is probably the last thing they wanted to see. One of them even rushes out of the tent, phone in hand. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a flutter of movement from the uncovered window. It's not Christy, as this person is quite a bit smaller than her, so I'm assuming it's the person who left the tent. I see their fading silhouette run as fast as their legs could take them towards the car park. It seems unusual that someone would have such a big reaction to this, but I push the thought aside for now. Well, how about we start with Dawn's cake first? Paul asks, pushing Velma's cake out of the frame a little. Velma nods sadly, her nose sniffling slightly, and Dawn, glancing at her first to check, does the same. So, Don, what did you bring for us to judge today? Sandy asks, occasionally flashing looks of concern over at Velma, who's currently whispering back and forth with Noel, presumably to come up with a solution to the current predicament. Don does their best to seem cheerful and happy, but it's clear even they are worried for Velma, I made a midwinter candle cake, it is one of my favorite recipes to make, M, it's got fruit in it that's been soaked overnight. Oh, and rum. 
We all need a bit of rum after the day we've all had. Paul mutters under his breath, adding louder, that sounds delicious, why don't we all have a slice? Velma, on the other monitors, wipes away a couple tears with the sleeve of her sweater, one I recognize from high school, and tries to collect herself. I hadn't really looked at it too closely earlier as she had her coat or an apron over the sweater earlier, or I was focused on something else. The sweater had been too big in high school, but it seems like she's grown into it more. Based on the condition the sweater is in, however, it doesn't look like she had worn it in a while. I wonder a little, maybe she wore it for me, knowing I'd recognize it. I'll ask her about it later. She smiles politely when she's handed a slice of Dawn's cake, even shooting them a thumbs up once she tries a bit. It's good. I see her mouth to Dawn. Thanks, they mouth back, are you going to be all right? Velma waves a hand dismissively at them, and Dawn looks even more worried than before. This cake is absolutely delightful. Prue says, it's not overbaked, it's not overseasoned, it's great. I'm hoping you're aware that because you've had time outside of the tent to make this, the judging criteria will be stricter? Paul poses this as a question, but his tone reveals that it is not, in fact, a question. Dawn nods anyway. Good, because this cake is fine and edible enough. You don't like it? Dawn asks nervously, glancing at Paul's face. I wouldn't say that. It's good. Paul is being mysterious, or at least he thinks he is, but it's clear he's only doing it for the cameras, and because the director is telling him, I'm kidding, it's great. I'm assuming that when Julian had mentioned that his child had been practicing baking, this was probably the one Don had spent weeks practicing, given the reviews they were getting. Again, through the uncovered window, I see the figure from earlier return, still running, but this time with a lankier figure in tow. Prue turns to Velma's disaster of a tiramisu in size, right, what did you make for us today, Velma Dash? Wait, a voice bursts out from just out of shot. They're not Mike-ed up so I could only just hear their voice being picked up by the microphones in the tent. Everyone in the production tent leans forwards, straining their ears to hear what's going on. Even the director is frozen, their continuous chatter into walkie-talkie paused, simply watching the monitors to see what's going on and why the show is being interrupted. The two figures I'd seen in the window emerge onto one of the monitors, revealing who they are, Emily and her boyfriend, Zane. Before you judge Velma's CA dash, wait, no, tiramisu, dash Emily halters a little as she corrects herself, but picks up the pace once again, you need to know something. Zane showed them. Prior to you guys taking the tiramisu into your fridge, I took photos of it, and it was perfect. Look dash dot. 
Zane pulls out his phone and shows us some photos of the tiramisu in the van, on top of a mini-fridge, see? Oh, all right, that's great, Paul says, reaching out for the phone, we'll just use that as a reference for when we're judging appearances, then. Do you not want to know who did this? Zane asks, a puzzled look falling across his face as he retracts his hand away from Paul, because if this is sabotage, it's really important to know. Well, is it sabotage? Sandy asks. Julian nudges me, tearing away my concentration from the monitors, come on, let's go. I asked him, what? Julian is already standing up, gathering his items, and extends his hand to me, you don't want to just watch everything through a screen, do you? With that out of the way, I turned to Melissa, who was poking at what remained of my notebook. A little bit of ash fluttered off, and I heard her whisper, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to ruin it. Why would you do that? I asked her, trying my best to keep my voice from rising, I really needed that notebook, it's really important to me. I'm sorry, she bursts out, tears bubbling out, I didn't mean to. I know that. I snapped at her, I want to know why. Out of nowhere, or at least it felt like out of nowhere, Shaggy and Scooby appeared at the door. Shaggy glanced at Melissa, who was curled up on the floor, crying, and up at me. He didn't say a word as he and Scooby went up to her, gently placing an arm around her shoulder, forming a sort of emotional support cocoon, and wiping away her tears. As they both talked to her in hushed voices, just outside of my hearing, I couldn't help but feel unwelcome. They were clearly doing the job I should probably be doing, as Melissa's foster sibling, or whatever. I didn't really want that responsibility. I've never been a big sister before this, and it's kind of scary having to be in charge all of a sudden, not that Melissa ever listens to me. We bicker more than we talk. I wasn't exactly what you'd call a maternal person, and I only really agreed to this to make mom happy. After everything she had gone through for me, this is the least I could do for her. She deserved to be happy, if nothing else, and if this is what does it, then so be it. Eventually, Shaggy stood up, bringing Melissa up with him, and helped her explain to me what was going on. I'm sorry, Velma, I was dash, she sniffled a little, and Scooby licked her hand in a way I assume was meant to be reassuring, you seemed so happy, and I wanted to be happy too, so I thought maybe if I solved my own mystery like you do with your friends, I could make my mum proud of me, too. Why are you jealous? I couldn't stop myself from asking, you have a dad, I don't. She gave me a look, as though the answer should be obvious, why do you think I'm in foster care, and you're not? They don't remove children from their families just because one of the parents isn't there. To be perfectly honest, I hadn't really thought about it. I had never asked, or cared, 
She had always just been a bit of a thorn in my side, so it had never occurred to me that she may have trauma of her own. Mum must have told me at some point, but I wasn't really listening, or was distracted, or had just straight up forgotten. It almost hurt, then, thinking about how inconsiderate, entitled, and selfish I must have seemed at first. No wonder she was so attached to Mum. I'm sorry, Dash Dot. Don't you dare fucking pity me, she snapped, I don't want to hear it. All right, all right, I won't. Josh appeared behind me, at the door, beaming as wide as a highway, thank you. He wrapped his arms around my neck, hugging me, I think. You'll never believe it, I got promoted. Josh does let go of me at this point and shoves a bit of paper into my hands. He was so excited that he didn't even notice Melissa's emotional state, instead pulling her up so he could do some old-fashioned dancing jig with her. She checked the papers, and apparently I was supposed to become head of music years ago when the last principal retired, but the paperwork for it got lost. She's giving me the old tutor's cottage. The paper he had pushed into my hands pretty much confirmed this, it even had a little note from the principal apologizing for the hassle with a smiley face. Really? Shaggy asked, matching Josh's energy, that's great. It's a bit of a fixer-upper, but it'll do until I get my own place. Josh pulled Melissa into a hug, and it's all thanks to you too. I can't thank you enough. That's all right, sir, it was no bother. I said, smiling at him, isn't that right, Melissa? She hesitated, glancing at me for reassurance, before nodding with conviction. No bother at all. Oh, and sorry about that notebook. Josh added, scooping up his belongings from around the classroom. Should I get you a new one? I can afford it now. I laughed dismissively, don't worry about it, sir, it wasn't anything special. Are you sure? Josh asked, not fully paying attention as he blew out his remaining candles. Yeah, are you sure, Velma? Shaggy asked, his tone asking more than his actual question seems to. Yep. I said with as much conviction I could muster up, I can make a new one, and it'll be better, and neater. I couldn't really remember what happened after that. I'm sure Daphne, Scooby, Shaggy, and I must have left Melissa's school to go back to our own school at that point, but as nothing really eventful happened, it's been lost to time. According to my mother, Melissa and I got on in a weird, awkward way after that, like we were trying to avoid talking to each other, but wanting to at the same time. I don't really remember it, and as Melissa went to her new adoptive family a couple days after that, we lost contact, even though she didn't actually live that far away from us. I'm sure I would have seen her at some point throughout my high school years, but I can only remember vague encounters, 
and after a few years she disappeared entirely as she and her adoptive family moved somewhere out of state. Maybe I should have been a better foster sister or made more of an effort to talk to her. Apparently we had a lot of similar trauma, although I didn't know that at the time. I remember lying on my bed, staring at the ceiling, the day she left. The house had seemed quiet then, oddly quiet. She had stuck up glow-up luminescent stars and moons onto the ceiling, and the paint had become pockmarked by the paint being pulled away when she took the stars with her. She had left a letter, though, and I remember reading that over and over again until the words on the page became engraved into my brain. For some reason, it had felt important to do so. I couldn't for the life of me explain it, though. Chapter 31 As we were leaving the tent, I noticed that the main screen, the one people in the viewing tent see, is back to displaying Bake Off's logo as well as the simple message of we'll be right back, smiley face. Obviously, Velma doesn't respond to my texts, but I wasn't really expecting her to do so anyway. It just made me feel a little better. The thought of Velma looking at these texts later when she's looking back on the day makes me a little giddy inside, and I'm tempted to add a little X at the end of the chain of texts. Ultimately, I decide against it, but the idea sits and sulks at the back of my mind. You made a good call. I tell Julius, who's walking briskly ahead of me. Hmm, he turns around, eyes blinking with some confusion, did you say something? You made a never mind, it doesn't matter, forget about it. A crowd had formed outside of the marquee, presumably some of the people from the viewing tent didn't want to wait for the monitor to come back on and instead decided to try to see what's going on for themselves. The silent masses collectively strained their ears to hear what was going on, which wasn't much. The wind is howling, drowning out anything that could have been heard. At the other end of the tent, I see the PA from earlier, Vicky, open a little flap. The scene was so small I had barely noticed it, but Vicky is in the process of stepping through, so it clearly wasn't just a trick of my vision. I poke Julius' arm and point at the PA. As subtle as we could, we snuck our way over there, slinking through the opening like cats who know perfectly well they're not allowed at the cream but steal it anyway. As we brush past the secret entranceway, I hear a quiet whimpering. I can't tell what the whimpering is, but it almost sounds like a small child. Concern overrides curiosity and I stick my head into the source of the sound to find sitting in the middle of the refrigerated room is a large basket of puppies. They're not entirely newborn, but they're not that far away from that stage, still relying heavily on their mother, who lies protectively next to the basket. Oh, a gasp escapes from my lips, and Julius backtracks to check on me. I gesture for him to be quiet, and glance around at the staff for permission to approach. 
One of them, a short 20-something-year-old with electric blue hair and round Harry Potter-style glasses nods, laughing bemusedly at the expression on my face. Do you like dogs, he asks, keeping his voice low so as to not startle the puppies, pulling his headphones down and gently placing the boom mic on the table in the corner of the tent. I nod enthusiastically in response as one of the puppies spills out of the basket, one with floppy ears and eyes the color of the man's hair. The puppy starts gnawing at one of my fingers after I had offered them my hand to smell. I flop down to sit next to them and gently rub their little head. What kind of dogs are they? I ask, they're really cute. Julius nudges me to remind me we need to return to our original mission. I nod, but turn back to the puppy. I don't know. Their mother here, Cheese, my little sister, picked the name Dash, the man replied with a chuckle, is a mix of golden retriever and something else. We don't know what the father is, although I suspect a husky, because Cheese likes the huskies, don't you, Cheesy? Cheese looks at him with what I'm guessing is a smile, pausing to lick the hand the man was using to stroke her. It feels weird calling him a man. He seems to be barely out of puberty, yet at the same time seems capable in a way not many twenty-year-olds are. I wonder what his story is and how he got here. And the blue hair. Surely that screams young queer teen? Or has social media been lying to me? Oh, I'm Daphne, by the way. I say after a slightly awkward pause, this is Julius. Ray. Nice to meet you. Ray extends his hand to shake my hand, then Julius, in fact, M. I was hoping to find these little ones a good home because I can't keep all five of them as much as I want to so if you know anyone. I might, actually. Michaela had mentioned a while ago that she was looking into getting a dog, and these looked absolutely delightful, let me get your number real quick, and I'll pass you on. Julius shoots me a look as I hand Ray my phone, reminding me once again that we need to get going. I make sure to snap a quick photo with one of the puppies after getting my phone back, the blue-eyed one of course, to send to Michaela with the guy's number, though. Do they have names yet? I ask Ray, who shakes his head. Not yet. I was planning on giving one to my little sister for her birthday tomorrow, so I was going to let her pick one and name them for herself. Julius nudges me again, so I say goodbye to Ray, Cheese, and her puppies to go watch what was going on in the marquee. If only I didn't live in a tiny New York apartment, I would have loved to have provided a home for one of those tiny fluff balls of adorableness. I allow myself a small moment of fantasy, in which I live in the semi-country, semi-city area like Crystal Cove, and I go hiking with my golden retriever and husky mix in the mountains every morning, and fresh bread sits on the table when I return. My bra furrows, fresh bread? 
That's a new addition to the fantasy. Usually it's a sewing project I return to, not bread, but to be honest, bread sounds far more appealing. As much as I love my cottagecore fantasy, I don't think I could genuinely get by without the internet or access to the vibrancy of city life, at least not for long periods of time. Not on my own, anyway. It was a crisp January morning. Barren trees shivered in the wind, the leaves having been blown away months prior. The cold nipped at my fingers, and I tucked them into my pockets, to no avail. It was the first day back after the winter holidays, and the thought of it terrified me. Fred had called the night before, telling us he wouldn't be able to pick us up, so I was making my way downtown, faces past and I'm school-bound. There was some anxiety in my mind, I will admit, that my new friends had abandoned me as I hadn't heard from any of them over the holidays, other than Fred's phone call this morning. Surely at least one of them would have dropped by, or at least shouted Merry Christmas, to me from a distance, it's not like where I live was some big secret, they had seen it every morning for at least a term when they came to pick me up. But no. Nothing. Feeling a tap on my shoulder, I whirled around, expecting ghosts, ghouls, bullies, or monsters. It is none of them. Instead, a fluffy purple creature lunges at me with the ferocity of a snake pouncing on their prey. Hi, Daphne, I said into the fluff, miss me? Of course, I did, she replied. H.M., I can tell, I told her, please let me breathe. She let me go with a smile adorning her face, so, how was your holiday? I shrugged, fine. This was technically true. As we weren't fostering anyone, Mum had decided to get in as many hours in at work as possible while she had the chance, and she gets paid more for working over the holidays. She had been so busy with work and tired when she got back that we didn't really have time for very many celebrations. The most she could manage was pulling out the presents from the wardrobe and presenting them to me under the tree, which I had decorated by myself. The last thing I wanted was to let Mom know that she had been disappointed, especially given everything she'd done for me, so I had slapped on a smile and thanked her for the notebook she'd gotten me. I suppose the holidays weren't that bad, I just missed human contact for the few weeks we were off. What about you? She went on for a little bit about parties, fundraisers and galas, a whirlwind of a rich person's busy social life. She talked about people I'd only ever heard about from TV as if they were close personal friends, and more often than not they seemed to be more excited to meet her than she was to meet them. It was peculiar, then, to think about her relative unpopularity in school. Daphne? I asked, why didn't you go to a fancy private school? It's not like your parents don't have the money to send you, and St. Augustine's isn't that far away. 
you would probably have friends who can relate to you more there than you do here at a state school. I had applied for a scholarship at St. Augustine's before we moved here last year, surprise, surprise, I didn't get in. Something about a failed public speaking class. Probably just some good old classism again. We wouldn't have been able to afford the uniform anyway. We'd even taken a tour around the premises, and both mum and my mouth had dropped at the sight of it. Just the courtyard was the size of a football field with expansive, maze-like gardens. I could very easily see a romanticized version of myself there, reading under the cherry tree, wandering the gardens, hiding away from friends in a game of hide-and-seek. Or maybe, in an ideal world, jokingly chasing around a girl, only to catch up with her, Anne. I shook the image of Daphne kissing me from my mind, not that that's something I regularly dreamt about, and focused on listening to Daphne's answer. I don't know, I guess I just liked this school better, she replied, not really paying attention, plus, I wouldn't have gotten to meet you guys if I hadn't. It almost sounded like she originally wasn't going to include the rest of the crew in that sentence, judging by the rush she was in to add guys, making me wonder about her actual intention with that sentence. Something in my mind reminded me to stop analyzing everything like I'm in a literature class. Are your hands cold? she asked out of the blue. When I nodded, she stuck her hands out, give here, let me be your heater. I obliged, and Daphne took one of my hands into hers, tucking it into her pockets. It was soft in there, and aside from a slip of paper and a candy wrapper, it was empty. For my other hand, she lent me one of her gloves. It's almost like we're made for each other, I had joked, your warmth balances out my cold. Or you're a vampire, she pointed out you already avoid sunlight and mirrors as it is. Hey! Just because I stay up late doing homework like a good student, I mocked offense, does not mean I'm a vampire. Also, I wouldn't have to stay up so late if we weren't solving mysteries all the time. Daphne stuck her tongue out at me, ah, uh, you just love me so much, quit kidding around with the mysteries and just ask me out already. I couldn't tell if she was joking or genuinely wanted me to ask her out. We had arrived at the school gates, however, so I didn't have the chance to ask her. With a quick jerk, she slid our hands out of her pocket, releasing my hand into the cold again. As the bell rang in our ears, she waved goodbye, not noticing the small slip of paper fall from her pocket as she rushed to make it to history in time for the second bell. It was a tiny square of folded-up lined paper, stark against the grayish-black of the tar of the school courtyard which was pockmarked with dried-up gum. Without thinking about it, I picked it up, tucking it away into my bag. I'll return it to her at break, I told myself, I'm only doing this to be polite. Even though I had told myself this, 
throughout the duration of the next free study period and succeeding chemistry lesson my brain agonized over and over about what was on the sheet of paper. It must have been important, my brain repeatedly told me, there's no way Daphne would keep meaningless scrap paper in her pocket for no reason. There must be a reason. Again, and again, I told myself, no, wait, but it did extraordinarily little to stop the flood of inquisitiveness and questions in my mind. By third period, my will had crumbled, and I couldn't resist the urge anymore. I had to see. Chapter 32 We have reasonable doubt concerning Velma's opponent. Emily stated, hands securely resting on her hips. I could practically see the tweed and smoking pipe now, kind of like disguised toast playing among us as a crewmate. Who, Don? Paul asks, brow furrowing as he glances at Don, who is in the process of being handed a slice of Velma's signature baked by Velma herself, surely not. No, they're just her proxy because Dash Emily begins. Because she can't bake for shit. Zane interjects, causing Emily to glance at him before continuing. Yeah, basically because she can't bake for shit, so she paid Dawn to bake for her. Dash Emily starts to pick up the pace from her usual slow trudge to a more animated and gesticulated sprint of a speech as she figures it all out in her head, the places falling into place as she speaks. But when she realized too late that Dawn isn't actually that great at baking, no offense, Dawn Dash shot. None taken, they say, flashing a thumbs up after they put the forkful of cake in their mouth. But when she realized this, she decided to give them a leg up, Dash Emily utters, trailing off a little as she comes towards the end of her revelation, so she must have decided to sabotage Velma's cake. I've got to say, Emily reminded me so much of Velma back in high school when she figured out the solution to a mystery. Velma would also get gradually more animated and excited as the mystery unraveled itself. The first few unraveled themselves, like they were tutorials to a larger game, but after that it was almost always Velma who put the pieces together like Sherlock Holmes, but cuter. The kids are all right, I think, a smile spreading across my face. But who is she? Sandy asks, not one of us, right? No, no, Dash Emily shakes her head. Her. Zane and Emily say in unison as they point to the flap, which had just been opened to let Christy step through. Christy, taken aback by the entire tent worth of staff, presenters, and other miscellaneous people staring at her as she enters, blinks blankly. Hesitantly, she murmurs something along the lines of, Excuse me? You sabotaged Velma's cake, didn't you? Emily accuses her, how could you? You have no proof, she exclaims, puffing out her chest before adding, also no, I didn't. Behind her, I notice one of Cheese's puppies, the one with electric blue eyes, pad along playfully. 
They're doing that small chunky animal walk where it looks like their head is too heavy for them to hold up properly, but they're still determined to get to their destination. I bend down to a crouch, reaching out for the small puppy to come to me. It's so small, if someone didn't realize they were there, the puppy could get hurt. Actually, I happen to have seen you leaving the refrigerated tent. Julius pipes up, and it wasn't just me who saw you either. Pfft, like that proves anything. Christy scoffs, if you must know, I just went in there to check on Don's cake, no nefarious actions at all. Air, sorry to interrupt, but that's not true, a staffer interjects, one of my staff reported seeing someone suspicious, matching your description, looking around and poking about in the fridge's dash dot. So? Like I told you, I was checking on Don's showstopper dash dot. But Don's cake was a spice cake, which doesn't need to be in the fridge at all, it wasn't even being kept in the refrigeration tent for that matter. The staffer wasn't taking any of Christie's bullshit and simply continued to talk over her protests and excuses. They flicked at a page on their clipboard, adding, and we already have you on the record for not properly alerting one of your contestants with enough time beforehand. It's negligent at best and plain evil at worst. Christy looks a little stunned, struggling to pull together another excuse, I, I didn't know it wasn't there. Don didn't tell me what kind of cake they were making. You did, really. Don also adds, I sent you several emails about it, and you replied to most of them. Do you want me to pull them up? Christy glares at Don as if the sheer venom in her eyes would be enough to kill and silence them. You what? Don't you dare betray me. It comes out as a hiss, her voice boiling over with fury. Her hair seems to crackle at the ends as she spews hate their way, you were a shit baker anyway, you didn't do your job, and now you're showing me up at what was supposed to be about me? You were supposed to win, you're useless a dash. Which is when she does the worst thing. Out spills from her mouth, like a cat throwing up a putrid meal on a snow-white carpet, Dawn's dead name. It wasn't really a surprise to anyone here, everyone knows Dawn's dead name from them growing up in the shadow of Julius's fame, but everyone knew to respect their pronouns and name, no one as far as I was aware, would deliberately use Don's dead name as a weapon against them. Except Christy, I suppose. Stunned, no one moves. The dead name rings in my ears, repeating over and over despite my efforts to repress it with Don's real name. Julius looks like he's ready to punch Christy, and Christy stands there facing the anger with a smirk. Before Julius, or anyone for that matter, can do anything, Don steps forwards. That name no longer holds power over me. It's the auditory equivalent of Don taking a saber and slashing Christie's neck in one fell swoop, causing her pride to crumble to its knees. 
Christy takes a step back as Don continues, you're trying to use my past to hurt me, and I don't think that's nice of you to do. You should leave. Julius tries to subtly wipe a proud tear from his eye as he watches his only child learn to stand up for themselves, hiding a smile behind his hand. Fine. Christy whirls around to leave, turning to face the puppy which had still been padding along happily towards me. She hesitates upon seeing the puppy at her feet, glances at me reaching out for them, and then with a grin, kicks the puppy out of her way. A gasp escapes unstifled. This wasn't just a small nudge, this was a proper kick that sent the puppy up into the air, landing with a flop on the ground again. Cheese, who had poked her head around the corner in search of her missing pup, witnessed the whole sequence of events and was now growling viciously at Christy, blocking her exit. Velma rushes to the aid of the injured pup, not even taking a second to question why there even were dogs in the tent, simply understanding that a creature needed her help, and nothing was going to stop her doing that. She scoops them up as gently as they could, placing them quietly on some of the gingham cloth used in the technical challenge. The pup whimpered the entire time, yelping as Velma stroked their back. The rest of the staffers, even the ones dubious about Christie's guilt regarding the sabotage and those who were just more of a cat person, all crowded around the flap, trapping Christie between them and Cheese, who was still barking away. Everyone hates people who hurt dogs, especially puppies, deliberately. There are murmurs then, from the staffers of what to do. They clearly couldn't just let Christy get away with this cruelty. One of the camera operators points out that cameras on standby probably caught the whole event, and a few peel off to check on them. Sandy, Noel, Paul and Prue are discussing something in the corner of the tent, exchanging knowing glances. Ray by now had come into the main tent to see what all the noise was about and joined me as I watched Velma try to comfort the crying puppy with a couple of the other staffers. We should get her to a vet. Ray says, not wasting a moment, he looks badly hurt. Where's the closest place? I ask, pulling my phone out to answer my own question. Mighty Paws Veterinary Clinic is two miles away. No, not there. Ray shakes his head, they've got far too many stories of them euthanizing strays or lost pets, I don't trust them. Okay, well what about the Trusted Pets Clinic? I suggest, reading from the list on my screen, they're four miles away, though. You guys can take my van. Zane offers, holding his keys out for me, it's a manual. Glancing around at my motley crew of puppy rescuers, none offer to drive, so I push the keys back to Zane, you drive. From there, we're a mess of gathering things and rushing about. Velma scoops up the puppy and the gingham towel, frantically trying to keep them calm while being the exact opposite of calm herself.
Ray goes to get the basket of puppies and call Cheese off Christy, the staffers with their eyes of fire should be enough to stop Christy from sneaking away for now, Zane goes to get his van from where it's parked, and I let Sandy and Noel of what's going on so we're not presumed missing. Dawn stops Velma as we're leaving, I'm sorry, Velma, I know this whole contest wasn't really fair on you from the beginning. They haven't announced who the star baker is yet, but I hope it's you, I'm going to put in my best word for you. I walk a little ahead so I can't overhear their conversation, wanting to offer them a little privacy. From a distance, I see the pair of them side hug so as to not crush the puppy before waving each other goodbye, Velma jogs a little to catch up as Dawn retreats into the tent. I see you've made a new friend? I said to her. I know, right, she glances down at the tiny puppy she's cradling in her arms, you're so cute. The puppy yelps a little as she squeezes a bit too hard, and Velma jolts back, tears in her eyes as she apologizes profusely. With a smile, I wrap my arm around her shoulders and indulge in the fantasy for a bit. As it was a free period, I was just sitting with the folded-up piece of paper sitting on the table in front of me. My class notes were spread about me as I tried to decipher what they meant, but my heart wasn't in it. When I actually glanced down at my page, I saw I had just scrawled nonsense words and doodled in the margins. If anything, they were worse than my original notes. I glanced out the open window next to me, noticing only now that it had started to snow. The other students were also starting to notice, and a couple excitedly pressed their faces against the window, dreaming of building snow structures, waging snowball fights, and making snow angels on the ground. Again, the image of the piece of paper on the tarmac ran through my thoughts. Shivering, I closed the window, pushing thoughts of fun and the folded-up piece of paper out of my mind. No matter how hard I tried, however, I couldn't focus on my class notes at all. There was a niggling voice in the back of my mind telling me that this torturous curiosity wouldn't abate until I opened the note, so I caved in and obliged. If you want to ditch the loser crew, Meet me after school in the old special ed building, third classroom from the left. Confusion hit before the hurt. Was Daphne going to leave Mystery Inc? Who was this from? Had Daphne asked for this? If so, why? Questions trampled over my brain, far worse than the curiosity regarding the potential contents of the note from earlier. My mind was less overrun by trains of thought, more highway just before traffic gridlocks it, cars full of pondering doubts pushing the speed limit to outrun the rush hour trap of burnout. Daphne, with perfect timing, appeared at the head of the table, resting her purple file binder on her hip as she tilted her head at me, you all right, V? You look like you just saw a ghost. Startled, I knocked the slip of paper from the table, sending my pencil case crashing into the ground after it.
Shit, let me help you with that dash. She placed her binder on the table and bent down to help me pick up my things from the floor. It takes me a moment to get over, whatever this feeling is. It's like I'm watching an over-the-top teen drama, where the camera cuts around little slowed-down motions, like her tucking her hair behind her ear, shrugging to stop her bag from slipping from her shoulder, the way her dress schemes the floor as she crouches down. Sweet and pretty and kind was the girl before me, not that I would ever have told her that out loud. The words repeated themselves over and over in my head, taunting me with their inability to be uttered. It reminded me of that one movie from the 80s, Hairspray, where Link and Tracy meet for the first time. Not that I like her. She's my friend, this is just platonic. She doesn't even like girls. Right? Thank you. I said, you really don't have to dash dot. What's that? Daphne asked, pointing at the slip of paper. And nothing. My heart skipped as I panically told her, slipping the piece of paper into my sleeve, out of sight. I don't know why I did that. It would have been so much easier to just tell her, let her know what had happened. I wouldn't even have to tell her I had read it, but I just couldn't. So, I tried to say as casually as possible, why are you here, Daphne? Normally on Monday's third period you're usually elsewhere, right? I have library sessions, yeah, but today I just walked out early, and no one stopped me. She informed me flippantly as she pulled out a hand mirror from her handbag, checking her makeup as she talked to me, plus, some guys were being dicks in the library. Oh. I replied simply, somewhat disappointed for a reason I couldn't quite place, okay. And to make sure you weren't all on your lonesome, I couldn't stand the idea of you without me, she added, sticking her tongue out at me, kidding. Oh, Daphne, why are you like this? Thankfully, the guys returned from the lesson they had together, saving me from embarrassing myself in front of Daphne. Not that it mattered. They were formulating some kind of plan between them as they approached, arguing about this, that, and the other. I didn't really pay attention. The guys arguing had just become background chatter and commonplace as they did it so often. Daphne, leaning forwards, gestured for me to come closer, whispered into my ear, by the way, I think Shaggy might like you. Hmm. I had to blink away the shock. Look. Daphne simply commanded. Complaining, I glimpsed over at Shaggy whose eyes darted away from me as he noticed my looking, a slight blush rising as he continued to argue with Fred. How cool would it be if you guys got together, and in, like, 30 years we would be married to each other and our kids would be friends, and dash dot. Daphne seemed to get lost in her dream of white picket fence families and movie-like romances, 
so she doesn't notice that her wording could be misconstrued. Sorry to burst your bubble, Daff, but only 2% of marriages in the United States are between high school sweethearts. Fred interrupted curtly, adding jokingly with butterfly kisses, although I'm willing to defy the statistics with you. Laughing, Daphne swatted his arm, probably deliberately more forcefully than socially appropriate as Fred winced and she glared at him. Anyway, Shaggy took over the conversation, taking the burden of the slight awkward pause succeeding the swat, we were planning to go to the cinema today, do you guys want to join? And what do you want to watch? Shaggy spread out the pamphlet he pulled out from his pocket. It was covered with highlighting and annotations that make me wonder what Shaggy's grade would be if he put this much effort into his literature class. I nodded at them, telling them that I'll have to let Mum know, but I should be able to go. Skim reading the pamphlet, I surveyed my options, noticing that Winnie the Pooh, on Valentine's Day had been circled and crossed out numerous times in three different colored markers. The colors matched up to those in Scooby's mouth and Shaggy and Fred's hands. What's on? I asked, or at least what were you guys thinking about watching? Sherlock, Undercover Roji. Scooby suggested from beneath the table, spitting the marker out onto the floor to say so, before continuing to gnaw on it as before. We're not watching that. I heard that it's terrible, Fred dismissed, and who would want to watch a kid's movie anyway? I do. Shaggy popped up, I want to watch the new Winnie the Pooh movie, Benji and Sugi went to watch it without me, and now I'm missing out on all of their new in-jokes. Well you can do that in your own time, Dash Fred crossed his arms huffily, Clearly this argument had been going on longer than I originally estimated, we're going to watch the usual suspects, aren't we Velma? That's rated R, and none of us are over 17 yet. I pointed out, do you know anyone who would willingly accompany us to the cinema? Not even bothering to let Fred answer, I waved off the consideration with a simple, exactly. Hmm and also it doesn't come out for another week and a half. Shaggy leaned forwards, glancing again at the pamphlet. That too. I agreed, sending Shaggy a finger gun, what about Houseguest? You've been awfully quiet, Daphne, Fred said, ignoring my suggestion, what do you want to watch? No thanks, I don't think I'll be able to make it today. Daphne replied, wincing slightly as she did so, I've kind of gone somewhere to be. Oh. No one else said anything for a second, when Daphne, like a parent trying to cheer up her disappointed children, added, I'll try to make it if I can, but no promises. Eventually, it's decided that we would be watching Sherlock, Undercover Dog. I don't even know how Scooby managed to convince us, but he did, so we agreed to meet at the school parking lot, where Fred would drive us to the theater. There was no sight of Daphne at the car park. 
The boys bickered the entire way to the theater, one angry at the other for caving to the dog's whims, and the other for not caring about Scooby's needs as a dog. There seemed to be more than what meets the eye with this argument, but I ignored it in favor of having an incredibly detailed conversation with Scooby in which we found creative ways to insult the both of them without them noticing that we were actually insulting them. There was no sight of Daphne outside the movie theater. We waited for about 20 minutes, but we were going to miss the start of the movie if we didn't head in, so Shaggy bought us three tickets, apparently the dog had to have his own seat, much to the annoyance of the theater staff, who would have preferred Scooby being left outside, and we made our way inside. There was no sight of Daphne in the foyer. Fred, being the only one who had actually brought enough money, Scooby had left his wallet at home, Shaggy has spent all of his money on the movie tickets, and I hadn't come prepared, not that I had that much money to spare to begin with, bought two buckets of popcorn for all of us to share, one salty, one sweet. He made sure we all went to the bathroom before we entered the actual screen room like he was our dad, Scooby and I had a heyday of insults for him for that. Sitting there in the semi-darkness, staring at the huge bucket of popcorn on my lap, Shaggy and Fred were sharing, and Scooby was occasionally stealing from them, I felt very alone. It almost felt like Shaggy and Fred were on a date together, and I was third-wheeling with Scooby. I felt a familiar tap on my shoulder, hey, is that seat taken? Daphne was standing there, a slight nervousness painted across her face. I wanted to hug her with every bone in my body. I thought you had somewhere to be. I said, trying to hold back my childish delight as she flopped down on the seat next to me. I changed my mind, she smiled at me, I'd rather hang out with you losers. She stuck out her tongue at Fred, who had overheard the last part of the conversation and nothing else. Something told me that although this was brilliant right now, all that had happened was the pushing away of the inevitable, and this dynamic would come crashing down at some point. Pushing the thought aside, I shifted in my seat to be more comfortable and placed the popcorn bucket between me and Daphne. The movie was shit, but I didn't care, I was happy exactly where I was, and I didn't want anything to change. 